Welcome to 2D Pokies Under the Influence podcast. I'm Robbie Dowling. I am here with Devin Johnson uh, on this week's podcast as uh, Pete Berthaud is on his honeymoon in Hawaii, taking a trip down to Maui and Kauai. And, uh, and Devin was is kind enough to, to reach out to me so that all the listeners to the podcast don't have to listen to me for drone on for 30 minutes and there can be a nice little breakup. So uh, he was kind enough to give up his time to come on the podcast and join me. So uh, we're really appreciative of that. And, and with that, I think it's only fair for the first time in podcast history for me to turn over, uh, turn over the cheers to you. And if you can give us something, that would be, uh, that'd be great. Hello everyone. Uh, again, I want to thank, uh, the listeners for tuning in to this episode and bear with me. I don't do many podcasts, but I will do my best. Uh, so the cheers for this week, uh, for me, if you haven't been to the last two home games and stayed for the halftime performance, the marching Virginians have done an outstanding job with their halftime show. The game that was uh, two weeks ago that we won't mention what happened in that game. Uh, they did a out of space theme and then they had the skydivers come in. There was Star Trek, Star Wars music. My father came with me to the game and me and him bonded over the Star Wars music. And then last week they had the Olympic theme and it was just an outstanding job. Really looking forward to the rest of the halftime shows this year. Uh, so I would just like to give a cheers to the Marching Virginians. All right. Cheers to that. So Virginia Tech played Rhode Island this past weekend. Uh, they they won the game 34-17. to 17, uh, And not as uh, hopeful as a blowout as I think many people expected in the game. We'll do a quick recap of how things played out and then get into our deep dive on on the team. To begin the game, VT opened the first drive with a 13-play, 81-yard uh, drive that ended up stalling down towards the end zone. I think it was about the five- or six-yard line, and they settled for a field goal. Uh, after that, VT forces Rhode Island to punt, leads to another long drive, nine plays, 86 yards, that was capped with a nine-yard touchdown pass to Hazleton, which made it 10 nothing. Rhode Island came back, drove 51 yards, and responded with a field goal to make it 10-3. And I think at this point, uh, the long drives early in the game, at least for me, made things feel better. I don't know how you felt about it, Devin, that early in the uh, in the game when it was it was 10-3. We're probably hoping that they wouldn't even be on the board yet, and yet they were. I don't um, believe that shutouts really come. I believe Bud Foster mentioned it uh, two years ago in 2017. Shutouts are so hard to come by. So nowadays against any opponent, I expect them to score. What I was more concerned about was that between the 20s, our offense was moving the ball with ease. And then even when we scored the touchdown, when we got to the goal line, we had issues punching it in in the run game. The first drive ending in the field goal, the second drive with the pass to Hazleton. That to me in the first couple of series was the most concerning thing to me, not being able to punch it in with a run game. VT comes right back after that with a six play 66 yard drive. I think we're catching a theme here that um, at least from an offensive standpoint, we were able to drive the field ended in a 37 yard, um, very nice pass to Hazleton. And that put VT up 17 to three. That said, Rhode Island responded uh, again with a 14-play drive that ends in another field goal to make it 17-6. I think it was nobody, everybody probably still felt the game was well in hand at this point, but 
again, Rhode Island was uh, was able to move the ball uh, quite a bit and and was able to put up points. There was some sloppy play after that a little bit, and then Rhode Island had another 75-yard drive, ending this one in a touchdown to make it 17-14 uh, after they went for the two-point conversion and got it. And at this point, I think is probably where the Twitter meltdown really started to happen uh, in the in the game overall. And the vibe in the stands, honestly, was not too different. Uh, you started to notice a lot of the students leave, people that had uh, found seats in the upper parts of the East Stands and South Stands started to leave. So the meltdown was not just reserved for Twitter. It was also in the stands. Uh, but to the players and the coaches' credit, they kept their cool, didn't start to, they didn't overly press or try too hard. They uh, stayed within themselves, stayed within the game, and eventually able to flex their muscles on lower tier competition. Yeah, and you're exactly right. So VT then gets, uh, the ball goes for a 93-yard drive on 10 plays to make it 24-14. That was on the TD pass uh, to Dalton Keene which we'll hit on the positives and negatives in this game, but the tight ends definitely were, were a positive overall. Um, and that was on the hooker scramble out to, out to the right on that pass to Keen. As the story has gone, Rhode Island comes back with another long drive ending in a field goal to make it 24 17 uh, on the next drive. VT scores another touchdown. This one was on the McLeese rush on the goal line to make it 31 17 in the remainder of the game was ugly to put it best uh, with the only other score being a Virginia Tech field goal to end the game 34-17 Virginia Tech against a team that we probably thought uh, would have scored less and we may have scored scored more despite some, I thought, uh, positive things on the uh, the offense. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because prior to the game, I saw a lot of pundits writing, experts writing about hopefully we're up by three or four scores early, able to get some backups in, get them some quality reps, which would have been nice. But the interesting is that we as a team are so young that even for our starters and second string, every rep matters that much more. So I'm not too concerned about the backups not getting a ton of playing time. Uh, against this kind of competition. I was a little concerned that late in the game, we're up two scores. Hendon Hooker was still running the ball. Kind of made me wince a few plays there, but uh, dodged that injury bug, thankfully. Yeah, so I think uh, overall, I, you know, uh, Pete always likes to do the his thoughts and overall kind of summary of the game. Uh, I think it's pretty clear here. Everybody would have liked to see a more dominant performance. I think we saw some serious problems in the defense that we'll get into here shortly. And I, I think we saw the offense start to really, I won't say mature, but develop into something that I think can be useful in, in ACC play. So with that, I think it's probably good to just jump into this, this vaunted Rhode Island team and what happened onto the field uh, and roll through some of the positive and, and negative thoughts on the game. I'll kick kick it off, and I will say that despite much of the concern around the defense, Tisdale and Connor, again, both had nice games. They are, we had been talking about Connor on the podcast quite a bit and what he was doing. Tisdale, over the probably the last two games or so, has really started to come alive and and be a dominant force in in this defense as well. So uh, I know we're going to, we're going to have to hit hard on the defense to the negative here, you know, pretty soon, but I I thought they played very well. 
you know, to, to build off of uh, Connor there. It's, it's actually interesting watching him on the field. Very often he was lined up against uh, inside on the slot receivers, if I remember correctly. And typically when I see those slot DBs, most recently Mook Reynolds, Kendall, and Kyle Fuller, of course, they tend to be on the smaller side in terms of their frame, more in the 180s, 190s. I'm pretty sure Connor is north of 210, if I remember seeing the roster. But he moves very well. So he could, I remember Foster talking about it as well. He could be really special down the road that if he has that quickness to stay with those slot receivers at his size, that means he stays in the box. He's good for once run support and can still stay with those tricky, slippery slot receivers. That could be a real benefit down the road. Yeah, it's a huge benefit that he also hits like a freight train as well. So for that that size, he can... He throws that weight around and he definitely makes people pay in, in, in positions that, um, you know, it, it's it's rare to have that that level of athleticism, that speed and that ability to be in the right place. So I think Hokie Nation is seeing a lot of ups for both of those guys in, in the future. I thought that the, um, you know, the wide receivers, tight ends, running backs, they just... They just uh, did a much better job in this game. And I again, everything's the caveat, which will stop caveating because we all get it that it's Rhode Island, but making people miss, you know, that was always the the commentary is we got to find a way to make open hats miss. And I thought in the open field, we did not a much better, but a better job of that. And we're starting to see it come alive in the game a bit. Really from the uh, running backs, especially McQueese had a couple of nice runs where I saw him put a move on a linebacker. He gets out in space. He stiff armed one of the DBs or safeties. I believe one play Keyshawn King almost made a guy miss. He got two string tackled. He probably goes for a 20 to 30 yard gain. If he doesn't uh, trip over his own shoe strings, the tight ends, I believe had the majority of the receptions outside of Damon again. I know last week they had something to the tune of eight catches versus the receivers only had two. And I don't know what the uh, exact number this week, but I believe believe it was something similar. Yeah, that is, um, you know, I I ran the numbers uh, and we'll get this to this in the negatives in terms of, but Hazleton saw more catches uh, in terms of percentage and number in any game in the last four years for a, uh, for a Virginia tech wide receiver that I could find in, in, in my stat book. So, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, that part of it. Uh, and then Hendon hooker, I'd, I'd, I'd welcome your thoughts on, on your take on his development, what he's done in, in his pocket presence, as well as his ability to, to shake things up and in, in the, you know, the, the RPO game, the read option out, all of that. He's, he's really kind of changed the dynamic of this offense, at least in my opinion. I actually feel like it's both a positive and a negative. It's a positive on Hendon Hooker and a negative on the coaching staff in a way because I'm watching him play. I'm watching these footballs that he throws, and they are the tight spiral. They're on a rope when they need to be. He's dropping them in a bucket on distance. And I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, where is he one of those players that plays better than he practices? And maybe that's why the coaches felt he wasn't ready, or did the coaches just simply make a mistake? But there was one play I know in the first series, it was a true RPO. I saw, I don't know, went back and watched the replay. I saw his eyes read the linebacker. He pulled it, had a nice throw to Damon. Um, so the reads are better. I still did see some, and I'm going to say incorrect reads. Of course, I, I remember reading that sometimes the coaches signal in the read that they want based on the pre-alignment. So I can't put that on Hendon without obviously knowing what's going on in the headset. Uh, but up, upstairs, in my, from my eyes, definitely did not look like it worked out for those particular plays. But 
just opening up the running game, you know, so many of these tight end screen plays, uh, running back plays, the quarterback draw play just has opened up the offense because of his ability to run when he sprints. I know against Miami, he did it a few times. I think he did it one time this game. He sprints to the right, drops back. There's either Keen or Keyshawn King on the left, dumps it off to him. Uh, I actually kind of wondered if you are of Rhode Island watched film because we ran that tight end screen. And I, it was a little bit different. I could tell the wrinkle because Dalton started on the left instead of on the right. But I, I would think that that would have been a point of emphasis for Rhode Island, given how much we emphasized it the, a week ago. Yeah, and how successful it was. We ran that play, play twice uh, and both times had huge success with it. And it's honestly, it, it's a beautiful play. And it, it starts to, his ability, I think, really opens up the offense in a, a lot of different ways. And in particular, with uh, utilizing... What are two, yeah, I, I mean, we've, there was all of this talk about Keen and where's Keen and, and we all heard all this stuff about Mitchell and now seeing the two of them in what we expected to see all year uh, is actually, is really nice. I will say that their hooker, I, I, I love his, his pass game in the sense that he, he misses to the right place. And I think that there was a lot of talk about his accuracy in that game. There were a couple passes to Hazelton that were that were off. I mean, and, the, and if Hazelton wasn't as athletic and big as he is, I don't know that he even gets a finger on a couple of those balls. But they were deep, right? It's not putting himself in in a position that he's going to get in trouble. And I think we're seeing that in his stats, and it, which is even more interesting that the whole and we'll come back to it only for this reason: the known outcomes. Guess what? The known outcome interception is is the worst thing that can happen in 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 this past game, especially with uh, with how the struggles that Virginia Tech's been having, in particular on the defensive side of the ball in in many instances. But Hooker knows how to miss to the wrong to the right place, not to the wrong place. So there were some overthrows, some balls that I think there were a couple actually multiple drop balls by Hazelton that I think he should have caught. There were also a couple others that I think were definite overthrows, but I, I love the, what he adds to adds to the game. And he really pushes that defense back on their heels and has to make them protect the run game as well, which just, it opens up so much for this offense. I agree. There was definitely, I, I know the play you're talking about where Damon dropped it deep. It was a little bit ahead of him, but it hits him in the hands. So, you know, it's one of those things. If you're the quarterback coach, you're saying you got to get that closer to him. If you're the receiver coach, you're telling the receiver, you got your hands on it. You're supposed to catch it. Uh, I wanted to actually take a step back to the defense. One thing that has been irking me about the defense in previous games is they will start out really great or maybe slightly above average in a game. And they'll hit some form of adversity, and then the, the wheels will just fall off the train. In this particular game, while there was no huge momentum-killing turnover, as in previous games, on the first series, uh, Rhode Island was going to punt, and we get called for, I think the official term is discerning signals, basically trying to bait the offense to false start by mimicking their signals. Um, and that could have been an, another case of the wheels falling off. We got a quick three and out. Defense is thinking they're done. Now they got to go back on the field. But they responded. They responded to adversity. And that was really big for me to see just to, as part of the growth of the defense, being able to handle that adversity. Because going forward, there's going to be turnovers. There's going to be penalties that go against you. How do you respond will determine how good or bad of a defense you end up being. Yeah. And I think that... 
that probably starts to round out, you know, a lot of my my positives in the game. One, I think McLeese has taken he hasn't taken a lot of heat, but everybody's just like, yeah, McLeese is is there. I thought he played really well in this game. I thought he ran the ball really hard. I thought he picked up extra yardage. And I know King is everybody's, you know, kind of favorite and you know what everybody thinks the future is going to be, but McLeese ran really well. Hooker on some of the, uh, you know, on some of those reads, he picked up, you know, you know, 10, 12 yards, uh, in, in tight, tight, uh, offensive lines that he, he found holes and he, and he got through. So that was, I thought really impressive in general. I was very suspect and probably critical of is probably a better word of the run game in general and how much we were trying to push it. And it looks like, at least in this game against this opponent, it's starting to get a little bit of tangible uh, foundation to it that you could start to lean back on it a little bit and start to pick up those those runs that you you really need to to keep the defense honest against uh, against the pass. And you know, a lot of that's a testament to Hooker, but I do think that that King and McLeese are are playing pretty well right now, all things considered. Yep, and and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that both of them definitely McQuise is blocking are blocking very well. I saw McQuise pick up some uh, either defensive ends that were able to get around the edge or blitzing linebackers. He was able, and of course, when you're as small as McQuise and King, you have to use angles and sort of push the blitzer in the direction that he's already going, so Hooker can step in the other direction. And I thought they did a a great job of that. One a stat that. People sort of, I think, when I was talking to them after the game, didn't really notice. We only punted once this game. The two drives that didn't end in points, other than that punt, were at the end of the second, at the end of the first half, excuse me, where we're just throwing a Hail Mary into the end zone as time expires. And then again, as time expires at the end of the game. So not only punting once, like that really sets you up for success going forward. If we can figure out those goal line issues early on, start to punch it in either with run plays or with pass plays. I think that point total will go from 34. You'll start creeping into the 40s, maybe even 50s if you get lucky on a couple bounces. Yeah, and I think adding to that, and it was I had to go back and look at the game, but the number of possessions for each team was so low, and it was surprisingly low. I, I don't have the stat, and I forgot to write it down when I was going back through the drive charts, but there there wasn't a lot in this game because the drives were so long, and I read it off at the beginning, but 80, 90-yard drives, even Rhode Island was having 50-yard drives. It, it, it was, it, it was, it felt like the old Georgia Tech games where it's like, hey, you'll get the ball maybe eight times, probably less, and let's see what you can do with it. And I think our drive chart was probably, I'll look back at it, but I think it was eight to 10 drives in total. So, you know, I think that, this game and this pace uh, and the the length of the field that we had to cover and Rhode Island did, it really ate up a ton of clock, to your point about the, the low number of punts. That said, I think it's a little bit unfortunate that I know that Rhode Island had some long extended drives as well, but we gave the defense, the offense gave the defense a lot of time to kind of get rest and be good on the sideline and not be you know, gassed. So it, it, that kind of exacerbates a little bit the thoughts that I have, at least when we get here into the negatives on, on the defense, because this was not a, this wasn't a, this wasn't a Wake Forest game where they just ran 85 snaps this past weekend. It was uh it was a lot less than, than that. So 
it's um that was a that was a little bit concerning for me just when I look at the defense and trying to evaluate how they performed in the game. And we could get more into it when we talk of the negatives. I actually when I was watching them play, with the exception of about the first 75% of the third quarter, the defense played a lot of over-the-top zone coverage. I think Foster's starting to realize that really, other than Farley and then now Connor starting to come into his own, he doesn't have the horses to just go flat-out man, stack seven or eight people in the box. And so I think he was willing to concede a lot of those five, six, seven-yard passes. And since we were running the ball well, they're completing these five, six, seven-yard passes. The clock just keeps on running. You run out of possessions. There was no, there were no turnovers on either side. I believe. I don't think uh, we had an interception or fumble. I don't think they had an interception or fumble. I think there was not even fumbles lost. I don't think there were any fumbles. Like no, the ball never hit the ground. In fact, I don't think. Yeah, and uh, no, I would, I would, I would totally agree with that. He and Foster had been playing a lot of that man to man really up until this point, we were seeing a, a fair amount of that to see him drop back into zone. I think just shows a recognition of kind of where, where we are and where we aren't right now as, as a team. So definitely a noticeable difference, but why don't we use that to kind of jump over and talk about, you know, some of the improvement areas and some of the negatives in, in this game. You know, my first, my first one was, you know, Hazleton and a couple of those drops, uh, the overthrows, I, I do think that there were some overthrows and I watched the passes in, in numerous times, but they were some that just hit them right in the hands. There was, we got the touchdown, but there was the pass to the end zone that I normally would have thought somebody like Hazleton would have, would have snatched on. I think it was a fade route over to the right-hand side of the, uh, the end zone. And he got <laughs> 14 attempted passes to Hazleton. Uh, in this game, which is, if you go back, if you look at the website, I track all of these stats. It is mind blowing how big of a percentage that is in terms of what it has been in almost any other game underneath Fuente and Coach Corn. And only 36% of those were completions. Now, normally, our wide receivers in general, on like a game to game stats, I'm usually looking at them and like overall stats for the year around on the low side at like 50%, sometimes like 55%. And then Keen last year, like blew everybody out of the water. I think his completion percent, you know, completed passes to him were like 75% or something north of that. But that was a, it just like, it just looked weird for how much talent there is on this team for that many passes to go to Hazleton. Maybe it was part of the strategy. Maybe it was trying to keep... Uh, you know, Hazleton's a deep ball threat. Maybe he was trying to keep the defense honest in terms of the deep ball, in terms of the run game, and really mix things up, which I think they did pretty well. But uh, it was probably noticeable during the game. The actual stats are pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it was definitely noticeable in the stands. Um, there's a lot of schools of thoughts of why that could be that we focus Hazleton so much. One, I know uh, previous coaches in high school and college talk about it, you know, wanting to hit someone early in the game so that they stay engaged. Um, my issue with that is I'm watching the game and I still see Hazleton missing blocks. There was actually one long run where he was blocking downfield. And I was very happy to see that. But I think on one of the opening plays, he completely just blocks air or Casper the friendly ghost, however you want to look at it. So maybe it's an attempt to keep him engaged. Uh, I have noticed partly this season and last season that we seem, we seem to focus on one style of play offensively and just try to beat it into the ground, hoping that it works. And if it works, great. 
everything goes great and then we start to deviate a little bit and if it but if it doesn't work then we have a hard time deviating because we keep doing it case in point like the miami game last uh week eight passes eight catches excuse me by the tight ends versus only two by the receivers this week like you mentioned the 14 targets to damon part of it also maybe trey turner and phil i think both were injured uh so that throws you off you've got three guys in there that normally aren't in there. And I think Caleb Stewart also was hurt. I didn't hear his name. I didn't see him. I believe he was hurt in the previous game before it. So that throws the sort of hierarchy off. You know, you've got Damon number one, but now we're the guy who's usually number five in the hierarchy. All of a sudden is number two. So maybe Hendon doesn't trust him as much. Maybe the coaches don't trust him as much, whoever it is. So maybe that's why the, the focus it could be a lot of things. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that I took away from this game that I really continue to take away from any game is our edge discipline or just pursuit angles on defense continues to be absolutely atrocious. Um, and I'm extremely confused by it because typically when your edge discipline is bad, your pursuit angle is bad, it's because you're not used to the speed of the game. You're not used to how fast someone can run. Uh, in this particular game, it didn't burn us as much because we just flat out had better athletes. That even though they were able to get the edge, we were able to track them down. But I know last week at the Miami game, we gave up the two-point conversion because finally on that particular play, he opens up the play. He's on the edge, and he keeps his shoulders parallel to the sideline or perpendicular to the end zone, however you want to look. He's sealing the edge. He needs to be on the outside with his shoulders facing into the end zone to encourage the offensive player to go back onto the inside. And to me, that's just a fundamental something you, you're taught in high school. And the fact that we don't have that really throws me for a loop. Floyd missed an open field tackle, I think, in the second quarter, one of their early drives, and he goes off for a 30, 40-yard gain. And I'm watching the replay, and I watch him run, and it's like he didn't expect the guy to be that fast. And so I, I have many questions about why that is. You know, it's like they talk about in practice, good on good. So uh, occasionally your ones should go up against our ones. We have these athletes on offense, Trey Turner, Damon Hazleton, Grimsley, now Caleb, that have the speed uh, to burn people if they take bad angles. So I'm wondering, like, is it also happening in practice or maybe Fuente, maybe that's just a thing he doesn't do in practice. They don't do one-on-ones. And so the defense never gets used to that game speed, so they're constantly taking bad angles. Yeah, and the way you know you articulate it better than I do, because the way I was saying is it's like they were just using, they're using outside runs and then doing the over the center of the pass, and their quarterback was dropping back like it felt like it was like twelve yards. Like he, there was no, I almost don't fault the defensive line for not getting to him as often as I would have expected in a game like this. Like I, I felt, and he was a. I got to be honest, some of the balls that he was throwing and the wide receivers, what they were catching, like really hard contested catches. Um, you know, my hat goes off a little bit to, to Rhode Island um, and that quarterback and the wide receivers because they they made a lot of really like stud plays. It, and I was actually really impressed um, in seeing him. But it was just you just knew what was going to happen. It was like, yeah, here we go. And so they're going to run it to field side and then they're going to dunk the six yard pass right over the middle. And it was just, it was, it was almost unstoppable at, at some points in the game, a lot of, you know, just some, some bad penalties at times. Farley had the, the pass interference that ended extending things on, on third down. And I know he's really improving, but that was just rough to see. And, and then we had, you know, obviously the targeting with with Reggie Floyd, which is going to impact us in this this next game. 
I I don't know what we have yet with, with this defense going into into ACC play. I can say that I'm 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 concerned uh, about what we have, but I think as we've been saying on the perimeter, we're we're really starting to struggle, and just the contain doesn't look that good with the speed of people and what they're trying to show and and they're game planning against it and it's going well for, for, for opposing offenses and understanding what we're going to put out there in the field. So that, that kind of rounds out what my concerns were other than the fact that this was a team that we can clearly had overall across the field, um, better athletes then. And I don't know that we necessarily played to, to our ability. I'm glad we got the W. I'm glad we just kind of move on from this. But if they think that's what's going to be happening with UNC this upcoming week, and you think I'm scared about UNC, wait till you see what happened with Wake Forest and what they're doing this season. If you're worried about being gassed on on defense and their ability to, you know, stop a high-powered offense, there's no bigger opponent that we're going to see than than Wake Forest. But UNC the upcoming game is uh, is going to be a test in itself. Yep. Uh, for the, for those who didn't catch it, uh, it was the late night game, I believe. Louisville and Wake. I think the final score is sixty two to fifty nine. They had something like sixty points combined in the first half. It was a little <laughs> silly. Um, I apologize to our listeners because I actually do have several more uh, negatives written here. <laughs> uh, just things that have bothered me uh, in this game specifically. We've harped on it before talking about our lack of D-line depth. My issue in this particular game saying we have a lack of D-line depth is our second and third strings should still be able to hold their own against lower-tier FCS competition. Um, And I believe it was the second series of the game for Rhode Island in the second quarter that they got almost half of their total rushing yards for the game in that one drive. And I remember specifically watching the first string come in at about the 20-yard line where there's 20 yards left into the end zone, and that's when I noticed that it had been the second string in this whole time. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, okay, yeah, we get gassed easily. We don't have the depth to go up against a UNC or Wake on the D-line. But against Rhode Island, we're still, like, we still can't hold our own. That's extremely concerning. Our kick return unit, um, I actually wrote this down uh, because I thought, I thought it was a funny thought. I always enjoyed kick return. You know, being a Hokie, love special teams. There's Nowadays, there's two schools of thoughts, right? The What I call the Devin Hester school of thought, where if I catch this ball anywhere in play, I'm taking it to the house and I'll deal with the ramifications later. And then there's the analytical side where, you know, if um, I'm fair catching this, if I'm inside the 25 or inside the five-yard line and I'm letting it go over my head if it's in the end zone, and then if they kick it short, I'm definitely fair catching it now. You know, our average starting position is better. We seem to be kind of doing a little bit of both. Uh, Rhode Island had some short kickoffs that we fought fair caught it. We had good starting field position at 27, 28 yard line. Everything's hunky dory. And then we had some kick returns where I think it was King, who's the up guy. I might be having them two back, the two up guys and back guys backwards, but the up guy backed up farther than he probably should have caught the ball two yards in the end zone. So now he, his momentum's carrying him backwards, but then he still tries to take it out. And our starting field position, that drive ended up being like the 13 or 14 yard line. Uh, so that's concerning, especially when our offense has been so wildly inconsistent. You do not want to be going three and out at the 14 yard line off of a kickoff. Yeah. Um, and I think what's weird about that is the players seem to be 
and this is not what you want on special teams. They they seem to be reacting to the momentum of the game, which is, hey, we need to get a when you got when you got Hester back there. Guess what? It's like, hey, do whatever you want, right? You know, one of one of the greatest returners uh, in in a long, long time. So our players seem to be like pressing or not pressing or trying to play safe or not trying to play safe. Your mindset on punt return and kick return should just always be the same, right? Like regardless of what the score is, whatever it is, it's about the setup. It's about what's the blocking look like. You know, what was, how far was the kick? Where are you positioned? Where's your momentum going? You know, those, those should just be constants in the game. They shouldn't be relevant to what the score is or anything along those lines. Otherwise that's when you get yourself in trouble. So I couldn't agree with that more. And I think that leads to the bipolar nature of what we're doing, which is not playing thematic kind of, you know, returns on, on, on kicks in, in terms of what we're going to do. And I, I think that was very different back in the day. And it's also a little bit of, right. Like the emotions take over and you don't see the field the way that you should. It's why some people you know, drive through a stoplight and they thought it was green, but it was really red. And, and until you can slow things down and really pay attention to it, then you're just a 16 year old sitting behind a minivan trying to learn how to figure out how to operate a car. Right. And the last thing I wanted to bring up, I read on Twitter, because uh, I, ch- I, I don't use Twitter much, so don't follow me on Twitter. I literally never post. It, it'd be a waste of a follow for you. Uh, but I follow a lot of football pundits trying to gain their knowledge. And one of the things they were talking about, um, you know, DBs, inside leverage versus outside leverage. If they have outside leverage, they're expecting inside help. So when I go back to watch the replay, I specifically look for that. Like, okay, he's saying... If they're outside leverage now, I should be looking for either the linebacker or the safety on the inside. You know, if this receiver uh, catches a slant, who was supposed to have that leverage? There were several plays uh, in the game where I watched the DB take his step to the inside, giving up the outside leverage, and we still give up the inside slant. So that's not coaching scheme in terms of calling the wrong defense at that particular point. If anything, it was the exact right defense. They called the inside leverage. Rhode Island's trying to do a screen, but the DB lets them go on the inside. And at at least two drives, I saw that when the DB gave up that pass, they were either benched immediately uh, for either Connor or someone else, or they were benched in the subsequent drive. So that adds more to the the coaches are giving them the direction. The direction is correct, but then the players just aren't executing it. And I know a lot of people are talking about, you know, how, how good are these coaches and assistant coaches. In game, at least, I'm seeing the right play called. I'm seeing the right leverage called. So now I'm wondering, does the player just not get it after being told 20 times, or is the coach just bad at teaching it in practice? Uh, but that was all I had. Uh, as far as negatives go, I know there's a lot of negatives <laughs> surrounding our program right now, but for this game, that was all I had. I will, uh, I think it's a, a, a good spot to, to end at, you know, at, at the end of the game, it was a, it was a W it was a score that honestly, finally didn't get much notice, uh, across the country in terms of national podcasts and, and having to listen to people talk about Virginia tech at least in a negative way, given what the final score was. But I do think that there, we're starting to see a lot more progression. Maybe it was just this game in in the offense. The defense, 
I, I don't, I think it's going to be a challenge all, all year. And we'll get into that here a little bit against UNC, but you know, we see Farley develop a little bit. Um, we obviously, you know, have Connor, we have Tisdale. There's, there's players on this defense, but as a cohesive unit, I don't know that I can point to anything one from game one until till this one that's really showing me a ton of development on that side of the ball. And that that's not great when everybody knows Bud Foster's leaving at the, uh, at the end of the year. And we have somebody new coming in, in terms of thinking of what they're going to do outside of maybe the UVA game, which the team always seems to, to get up for. Yep, it'll be interesting, especially because, you know, anytime you have coaches come in, players transfer, choose not to transfer, that's always a big deal, especially for us when, you know, we do have these, as Adazio would call the dudes on defense, you know, we don't want to lose them. Like Dax, of course, comes to mind being Bud's guy and with Coach Foster leaving, you know, that's all it's already on my mind. Is Dax going to stay or is he going to go? But I think this would be a good time for, the classic two deep beer break that I've heard so much about. Well, hopefully you've you've listened to it. Why don't we um, Why don't we kick it off? I, I think you've got a you've got a beer, and I've gotten I've got one. I think it's from Sweden. The more I'm looking at this can, so this is going to take me a second to figure out how I'm going to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, I'll go ahead and get it started. So uh, for anyone who knows me personally, and for those who don't, I um. Not the biggest drinker in the world. I basically the only time I drink beer is when it is tossed to me by my friends at a tailgate, in which then now it's rude if I toss it back. But there are a select few that I do like. Uh, one of the ones that I do like, the Samuel Adams Summer Ale. Now, of course, it is mid-October, so I don't really know where I can get one of those. But as I like to say, I have friends in drunk places. So I sent out some texts saying, hey, I like this beer. Is there something that I can get that tastes like it? And everybody suggested, that's just everybody, the few answers I did get all said Blue Moon. I got about three answers that said Blue Moon. So I know, uh, and I've seen the whole list of beer on the website. I know all of it's like fancy. Sometimes it's from exotic places. Sometimes it's from breweries in towns I've never even heard of. And here I am just drinking a standard Blue Moon. Uh, But that's what I'm drinking. I like the... I like the Christmas of it, maybe because it's just I kept it in the refrigerator for so long and I keep my fridge like right at 33 degrees, pristine temperature. <laughs> um, but it's that it has a little bit of an orange flavor to it. I think they added the that for the sort of what's it called? Um, secondary flavor. The Yeah. But uh, so, Robbie, what are you drinking? Oh, I love it. Hey, a Blue Moon's a good solid beer. If you're going to go like the off the shelf gro- grocery store beer, I think that's a that's a that's a good one to go with and th- listen i may drink a lot of uh high class ca- classy beers as you call them i just call them you know just random beers um but a blue moon with an orange you can't you can't really beat that the the flavor is delicious so i'm drinking the sunshine orchard this is by doug's d u do guess maybe i don't know it's d u g g e s I'm now looking at the label. This is a double IPA, which is strange to get in the U.S. So they they have to, because that's a beer that has to be relatively fresh. It doesn't have to be super fresh. It's not like a New England style. But yeah, I don't know how they would be getting it to the U.S. and have it taste. It tastes delicious. It's It's a double IPA. It has 
some oatmeal, some rice. They don't give any of the real ingredients on here. And it's from Sweden somehow. That's the only place I can find a distribution on this whole thing. So I think I'm going to have to do a lookup on this one afterwards. But I'm 99% sure um, the beer's from Sweden. So I'm impressed because drinking this fresh, if you were actually in Sweden, it would probably be even more delicious. But it's a very good double IPA random one I picked up off of off of the shelf so I uh I like it I do all right so let's get into this UNC game a team that I don't know if I could have ripped on harder for the uh the the whole Mac Brown hire but as we've mentioned he picked up a lot of good one a lot of good assistants uh around him and they seem to be you know really coaching this team well they obviously have a lot of talent on that team, completely different than what we saw uh, when Fedora was there outside of the one season. I think they got 10 wins when UNC had their had their good year. But um, UNC is 3-3. Three and three. They're 2-1 and one in the conference. They have wins over Georgia Tech, Miami, and USC East, as, uh, as we like to call them, but uh, South Carolina. Losses to Clemson in a really close game. I think that one was 21 to 20. Really close game. Wake, who has surprised even the most bullish, I think, of, of people uh, in, in thinking what they were going to do. Everybody knew that would be a high-powered offense, but it's been even more so than I think most imagined. And then a really good App State team. So they are ranked 56th in the latest S&P not S&P Plus, I guess it is anymore, as we've talked about, and 44 on offense, 72 on defense. They're averaging about 450 yards a game. Only have four rushing touchdowns to 15 passing and only four yards uh, per rush. So uh, the team's definitely leaning one way more than the, uh, the other, but obviously a more formidable matchup than we probably expected going into this game with the uh, coaching hire. Yeah, with UNC, really, if if you asked an average fan just looking at their schedule, their roster, their stats, they would have a hard time figuring out just how good this team is because their three losses are to really good teams. There's no shame in losing to Clemson. You know, rank ab state, you cowards, as I always like to tell the AP poll voters. Um, and then Wake, of course, and then they beat mostly below average teams. I'm not quite sure where USC East, you know, they did just beat um, Georgia uh, college kickers guys. So it's hard to tell where they are. So going in for us, we, we do seem to play to our competition. A lot of the, a lot of the times, you know, even last year in uh, the Notre Dame game, you know, we were hanging with Notre Dame, which admittingly has more talent than us, but for the first half we were hanging with them. But then this year, you know, Furman's beating us at halftime, Rhode Island's hanging around. And then, but then we turn around and we boat race Miami in the first half. So, you know, sort of Jekyll and Hyde, which tech team is going to show up and then how good uh, is UNC really? Um, I did find this one nice note. We are one in five against the spread this year. So mathematically speaking, I think we're due for a bounce back game. <laughs> we always love the bounce backs, but I think, yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent right. I, it's even more than most years, we are absolutely playing to our, to our competition, which in my mind is, is, is not a great thing, but listen, Georgia just played to their competition this past week. So it happens to the best of them. It just happens to us a, a, a lot more than others. I, I don't know where to peg this UNC game. And in fact, 
I think that this Virginia Tech game is going to speak a lot to to what they are this year. And that might be a negative for us. It might show that they are a really good team. I mean, Wake was an out-of-conference game, which was their weird schedule. Basically, the stupid ACC scheduling causes us only to play people so many years, and a bunch of national writers want to give Wake and UNC heat because they played an out-of-conference game against each other, even though they're both in the same conference. I don't mind it because you need to fix the scheduling problem. You don't have to fix you know, UNC and, and wake, but uh, they, I mean, they've been playing some tough teams. Uh, none of those matchups, I mean, US South Carolina, we'll call them instead of USC East. You just saw what they did to, to Georgia, Georgia tech. I think we figured we knew that would happen. Clemson, they gave them a run for their money. I, this is a much tougher team than you would expect going into uh, somebody that's three and three on offense. Yeah, the, the names keep popping up mostly because we end up recruiting or going after a lot of the same players with our kind of North Carolina to VT uh, mantra that we we keep pushing. Chaz Sherratt has been causing a lot of problems for for QBs against their offense. Miles Wolfert, I, I, he has three interceptions, I believe now, maybe more, because I think that stat might have been before this last game. Talman Fox has a bunch of sacks as well. So for our offense. I, I, I don't see, I don't see like a odd defying defense that we're going up to ranked 72, you know, in S and P in the nation, but there's absolutely some talent here that could cause some problems for us. Although I think with the development that we've seen over the last two games and with hooker into the game, I think we can spice things up a little bit and maybe, um, cause some, uh, cause some problems for him. There's so many interesting tidbits about UNC in this game and Virginia Tech in general in relation, you know, as everybody knows, they have Daz Newsome, brother of uh, Newsome for Virginia Tech a few years ago. He had, I believe he leads them in catches, uh, but, and I'm going to butcher his name, Diami or something like that. Brown has most yards for them. Yep. Uh, for those who don't know, Chasserat was of course the quarterback for them one or two years ago. And I remember specifically looking up in max preps. I have it written down. He had 22 total tackles in high school uh, on the defensive side. And now he's leading them in tackles and he's second in sacks on their team. And, you know, we, we, we harped on, you know, the Mac Brown hire before, but UNC just, I guess was sort of like Louisville where they had the talent, uh, you know, they can recruit, they're in a the fertile ground, but they just had, a culture issue and you know they talked about when they were bringing mac brown and they just wanted to fix the culture and if nothing else it sounds like he's done just that going more into these stats here oh i, I would be remiss if i didn't mention unc continues to have a solid contender for best name in college football with storm duck <laughs> high quality i think they've given up 19 sacks on the year in their six games comes out a little bit over three sacks a game so maybe we're going to be able to uh, dial up some pressure but Considering that they've played Clemson, you know, they're going to have a good defensive line. App State's going to be pretty good. USCE, South Carolina, I think would be all right, just given SEC recruiting. Surratt only has thrown three picks on the year, which is incredible. I believe he's a freshman, not even a redshirt freshman, just a true freshman. Absolutely incredible. Um, but he's not mobile. Uh, I actually looked up again. I was uh, since I was in max preps, I decided to keep looking. He ran a 5.0740 when he was somewhere between his junior senior year of high school. So, you know, given that they've given up 19 sacks, he's not a super mobile quarterback. 
you know, Bud has been showing more blitzes recently. Maybe we're going to dial up the pressure, uh, able to create some some havoc plays for us on the defensive and while they're on offense. Yeah, and I think the the key for us in in this game is their the rush game for them has not been good, and uh, that. I think that's going to speak volumes about where we're at as a team, you know, given that we're about halfway through the year that it has not been good. And that's, I think it's mostly due to the offensive line. The offensive line has been porous probably, you know, at, at, at best. And the quarterbacks reacted pretty well to that. I mean, you know, 15 TDs, I think three interceptions is, is relatively a stat line, a good completion percentage with that offensive line, not being that great is is probably where we're going to make hay and honestly the the weird part of this game is that's the scariest place for us to to take damage because that's where it's really come down to i mean yeah there's people that have been putting pretty good yardage on us on the ground but the pass game and this mix from playing you know, man to man and now going to zone and i don't know what we're going to see in this game and for a team, we didn't have any interceptions against Rhode Island after the heyday that we had in the in the Miami game. That's where I think we could get ourselves in trouble because they may not be putting up mass yardage, but they're certainly not doing any um, any favors for defenses that they're going up to. Yeah, we actually average 50 more yards than them. Uh, excuse me, they average 50 more yards than us. Uh, I know Pete's not a fan of total yardage, but that is a, a stat. I, want, I did actually have a note down here. I'm not sure if he's back from injury, but Miles Warfolk was injured two games ago, didn't play in the most recent game. I'm not sure if he's back yet. So there goes their, um, I guess you could say their best cover DB since he has most of the interceptions for them. Uh, another interesting note, again, what you're talking about, these edge plays, the passing game. The quarterback, again, is a freshman, but... He doesn't target their tight ends a lot. Typically, and we're seeing it with Hooker, uh, you know, they talk about the tight ends and running backs are a young quarterback's favorite friend when he's, um, they're big, easy to hit, they've got long catch radius, but their tight ends only have eight catches uh, on the year. And freshman court, a true freshman quarterback, all of it's going to the receivers. I think it just speaks to how much they emphasize that, that outside threat that they have. Yeah, and I think that could be... That's a huge boon for us, especially for the very successful kind of short center slot passes, yeah, slant passes, things like that that have been happening over the center without, you know, the traditional what you think of as being like the Notre Dame type tight ends and things like that. That can, you know, that game could be could be another um, another story in and of itself when when we go when we go up to South Bend. So I definitely agree with that. But I I heard about Wolfrook and then I think they may have another defensive back that's out as well that may be injured. Overall, I think that the this this game I don't think that our defense is really going to hold this to a low scoring game. I would be extremely surprised if that were the case. I think you know the number that I would have in mind that we have to put out on the field. It's probably high 30s and maybe to touch 40 in order to to take down this this UNC team. But they're going to be energetic. I mean, this this team, although they are are three and three, I think there is a lot more talent there. I think the coaching is is a lot better than I ever would have expected going into the, the season. 
and it could it could spell trouble for for us heading into you know the traditional I say traditional because of the BC game and and the scheduling mix up that happened this year, but the traditional side of ACC play. And I think it's going to be another one of those games where we're going to have to see how the defense responds because I, I honestly do think that they're they're going to unload you know a good long pass here or there in the first half, and we're going to have to see how we end up responding once we get the kick back on our side. Yeah, to your point, you know, you one could make a argument that definitely in terms of havoc plays the defense had its best game against Miami and we still gave up 35 points so like you mentioned the high 30s and low 40s I think the offense can do it uh, especially if they continue to not create turnovers Hendon Hooker continues to be safe with the ball the ball carriers don't put it on the ground so I think we can hit that number I'm hopeful that the court our coordinator Cornelson does not outsmart himself on the on the other side of that, like you talked about UNC give, getting a bunch of points, probably, you know, in this in this scenario, if we win high 20s, low 30s, I know UNC is going to, I'm not going to say throw the kitchen sink at us, but they're definitely going to come out with some special plays, a lot of fire. If I'm not mistaken, we've beaten them three years in a row, four years in a row now. Yeah. And not just on the field, we've beaten them for some key recruiting battles. Dax Hollingfield, of course one of the big names that we've won. So this game means a lot to UNC, not just on the field in terms of ending that streak against us, but also to turn the tide on those in-state recruiting battles because NC State has gotten better. Wake Forest is getting better. They're starting to take players in their own state. And, you know, between those four big North Carolina schools, East Carolina's they're hanging out in the shadows. And then we're dropping down, obviously, to North Carolina. There's not enough players in that state for all the schools to get a bunch of good recruits. So, yeah. The, co- the players are going to be fired up because they're sick of losing to us, and the coaches are going to be fired up because they want to start winning those recruiting battles. Yeah, and I think you know you bring up a great point, which is Dax is from North Carolina. He's a, a big North Carolina native, well-known from, from there, and there's already been talk about him getting uh, pumped up. And I think Dax is, has struggled this year. We've, we've talked about shifting players and where everybody fits in the linebacker spot and uh, some of Dax's struggles in in making the right read, jumping too soon, you know, getting off his feet uh, and not but there's no doubt in my mind at least still to this day that Dax is, you know, a leader in the locker room in terms of getting people energized. So if, for the if nothing else, I think coming into this game, he should be the ones keeping people pumped up, getting excited about it. It's a big game for him. We may not see it in performance or anything else, but sometimes you just need that in the locker room, right? Like, <laughs> let's you know think back to the SI article and all of that. Some of our problems were locker room problems. You're going to have somebody there that's getting people excited and, and letting them know that this is an important game. For a lot more North Carolina players on our roster, than we've probably had in a long time. So it it it, it could be interesting. Those guys don't want to, you know, have guys coming off the field and giving them the, oh, well, at least you guys tried for a home game for Virginia Tech. So I think that could be a positive momentum for the team anyway. Yeah, n- nobody wants participation trophies. Of course, what you're worried about with all that emotion is, you know, overrunning plays, getting over is not sticking to your keys, especially, you know, Dax is still just a true sophomore. Football is, it's interesting. It's sort of this 
the last sport where you can definitely say that, you know, it's still an emotion driven sport, you know, basketball with the three point shot, baseball with the shift. It's getting huge into these analytical driven sports and different play calls where, but football still, you got to play with the motion. You got to play with this mean edge, especially if you're in the box, you know, offensive, defensive line, linebackers, uh, fullbacks and running backs. Uh, so, it, you know, if, if Dax can keep them pumped up, definitely. But, you know, you don't want to get a little overzealous. I think Trey is also from North Carolina, but I haven't seen, of course, Fuente always keeps things close to the vest. I haven't seen the injury report on if he's going to play this week or not. Yeah. Even if you did, it would probably just say, like, questionable. I think they have to put it out now. If I'm not mistaken, I think this year they finally made the rule that you have to put something out there, but like they just change it at game time. So you you never know what's actually going to happen. I'd, and it would, what the fan base has been clamoring for which I can't wait to see is a full Hazleton Turner game, which has been completely like not been able to happen so far this season. So I'd love to see, I would be very interested to see what hooker does in terms of passing with Hazleton and Turner out there for a full game, right? Like in, in seeing how that pass spread actually kind of moves around and I think right now he's at a place hooker at a place that, you know, he's just going with the comfort zone, right? And he's just going with what he's comfortable and he should like, he's just getting his starts underneath him. He, the joke was always that he hadn't thrown any passes until he, his first start. But I think that will be really interesting to see if he still sees the field the same way, a little bit myopic versus, you know, kind of seeing and being able to spread the ball. But for somebody that's responsible for also running the ball very well, I think he's done well at seeing the field. I think, I think UNC is going to struggle in the secondary with uh, what Hooker is going to be able and trying to protect, you know, what he can do on the ground. I don't know that it's going to be enough for us to take a a W here. I mean, this is a game that, you know, starting the year, I really didn't have that much concern about, much like Wake. I, I thought that we could at least keep that game close and get a W, but seeing their performance and seeing who they've been playing and how they've been playing them, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Fuente does kind of seem to take these UNC games a bit personally. You know, even last year, we were able to win by, in, I guess, in a way, a miracle, thanks to a fumble at the goal line, for those that remember. I've, I've, and I'm also in that camp where like not having seen Damon and Trey in the same game and uh, Grimsley, I, I think they call him Hezzy on the team, uh, but not seeing Grimsley out on the field as well. We seem to continue to, and maybe football's just gotten so fast, the players have gotten so big that more and more injuries are just a part of the game. But it always seems like we're missing key pieces. But to your point about Hooker, the, the offense or at least Hendon Hooker specifically, is starting a little bit, not in terms of production yet, but mirror the 2016 offense in terms of where Hooker, he drops back, it's one read, and then he runs. Um, maybe, maybe he gets to a second read. There was a couple of plays, I think, against Rhode Island where he did get to a second and third read. But there were a lot of plays where he looked at his one read, and he just threw it. There wasn't a lot of looking off the safety. I didn't really see any checkdowns to a running back or a tight end. Maybe that works to our advantage because, as we all remember, the Hurricane game, 2016 against UNC, you know, Gerard Evans, basically every pass was run, read, excuse me, one, read, and then run, which can work, especially if UNC doesn't have uh, the secondary. You know, they've got, I think, like you said, two guys injured on the back end. They, they don't have the secondary to keep up with our athletes. It can work, but 
especially with the young quarterback, you know, I don't want to see him panic when that that one read isn't there. And then UNC has, you know, Chasterat spying him in the middle. And now they've taken they've taken away his first read. They've taken away his run option. You know, what does he what does he do now? Yeah. And just in, in to kind of finish my thoughts on it. So maybe not this year, but next year, Sam Howell at QB is going to be a problem. I mean, that, he has played exceptionally well for what most expected for him to put out on the field, as we mentioned, you know, early on in, in kind of the preview. So yeah, his uh, his QBR against Clemson was still 75. It was pretty high against defense like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and they, yeah, they lost a lot of their defensive line, but they, I think everybody understands the talent that that team's putting out on the field every year. So I guess, you know, in summary for me, it, this, if this, it, I would walk away with a squeaky win as looking as, you know, that would be a very big positive for, for this team. Um, and a blowout against a defense that this, it's not poorly rated, but, you know, 72 in the nation isn't, is not great. You know, that, that would, that would signal a lot more trouble ahead, especially what we're going to see from Notre Dame, especially what we're going to see from Wake Forest, especially what we potentially, UVA needs to improve uh, greatly in comparison. They've regressed over the year, over the course of the season, I should say. So, uh, you know, this is going to, this is going to mean a lot for, for the team moving forward in terms of expectations. I had, you know, I said Duke was the game that I was going to kind of judge the team off of and what we were going to see. And I did, and my expectations have dropped greatly. So this is what the expectation, this was the game that was going to be the expectation now and seeing what UNC actually put out on the field and, and the fact that the coaching staff, as much as I wanted to make fun of it, isn't a joke. And, and they found a way to invigorate the fan base the players, the boosters. I mean, really everything they brought Mac in to do, he's done a good job at, he's not going to be there that long. I don't expect, but they've, they've hit on all of their objectives. I think in, in what they did in bringing him in. It is actually going to be interesting because when Mac does leave, you know, like we, you brought up, they brought in a bunch of good assistants. So when Mac does leave, do they keep these assistants? Because they are doing a great job of recruiting trail from what I can tell and on the field, so when he leaves, you know, the new guy, all, you know, the new guys always want to bring in their guys uh, who they've come through the ranks with. But, you know, when you're at UNC and the assistants are already doing great now, you're kind of at a crossroad there. I'm yeah. personally, I'm, I'm trying to, I, you know, this whole podcast, I've been trying to decide how I feel about this game. Definitely, like, I will take any kind of win. If we win by one point on a Hail Mary from our own 40-yard line, I would still be ecstatic and say that, yes, this team has turned a quarter because, like any fan, I like to jump to conclusions. It is at home. You know, I don't know how much that matters for us anymore. You know, the Terra Dome is not what it used to be, and I can get a little bit into it uh, later uh, about, you know, the students leaving. I know I talked about it before, uh, some of the fans leaving. You know, players maybe being too comfortable playing at home, you know, too used to it. I'm hopeful. You know, I'll be there. I'll be rooting like always. But I'm definitely, I mean, scared. I go into every game scared, to be honest. Every, every game for the past year and a half now, I've just gone into scared. And I, no, no exception for this game. All right. Well, why don't we use that to, to pivot um, to, before we get into picks and the last beer break, your, 
your general thoughts as a fan hopping on the podcast. And we always like to hear what people have to say. If you had a few thoughts on just kind of the general state of play and where, wherever, wherever your headspace. Yeah, no, sure. Um, I can do that. So, uh, apologize to the listeners is going to be a bit of a monologue, but to give a background, I'm a, I'm a 2015 grad from Virginia tech. I was actually born in Blacksburg about, eight or so mile, a bit farther, maybe 12 miles from home place down in the Catawba area. For those who've been in that area, I went through the whole Blacksburg school system, Margaret Peaks Elementary School, Blacksburg Middle School, Blacksburg High School, and then through Virginia Tech the whole while going to all these football games. Uh, at one point, I did, in fact, break 100 home games in a row only to be stopped because I started work and I was training in Chicago. And I actually thought long and hard about coming back for that game. It was the Duke game 2016, excuse me, 2015. I thought long and hard about it, decided not to because we were in Chicago with my new coworkers. We were training. I didn't want to miss out on all the fun. So for those of you who can do math, like I said, I graduated in 2015. I'm 26 years old, but I find myself not falling into the same line of thinking that most of my peers in my age group do that are Hokie fans. Um, and the reason being is because my parents both graduated from Virginia Tech in the early 80s. So they've been around. They followed Virginia Tech in the mid-70s all the way up to today. So when I tell people I know what it's like to be bad, I've heard their stories. Um, my dad remembers specifically a Florida State game in the mid-80s where we lost something to the tune of like 40-some-odd to 7, and we scored the 7 on a kickoff return, and my dad was ecstatic. They were so excited for that play. It was, so it was the highlight of their day. So I don't... I don't look at six and six that we had in 2013, 14, 15 with those years as reasons to burn down the barn. I'm just like, Hey, we won. We lost some. It happens. Bad years. I, there was an article on the key play. And I think you mentioned it on the podcast a bit ago about, you know, the fear setting and, you know, was the beamy years just a flash in the pan. And we go back to the quite frankly, not even mediocrity, the, the atrocity that we were in the early 70s before the Dooley years and then af directly after the Dooley years, or is it the start of something permanent? And I think the answer to that question is going to be based off this. I'm a big history buff. My father taught me, when you are, when, whenever you're at a crossroad, whenever you're trying to think of something, there's 10,000 years worth of human history. Somebody has been through it before at some point. Success is not created, it's repeated. So when Beamer was brought in in 1989, you know, nobody wanted the job at Virginia Tech. We were under recruiting sanctions. You know, we had less scholarships. It was this middle of nowhere school with no recruiting background because the 757 area disliked us at the time. Couldn't go into UNC. So Frank Beamer comes in and in, I think he stepped, sorry, excuse me. He started in 1987, excuse me. And then in 1989, 1990, he goes six and four and six and five. He's ranked at one point in the, in the 89 season, which for a school like Virginia Tech with really no big history is a big deal. And I equate that to Fuente's first two years here. We're in 2016. He comes in, goes 10 and four. We're in the ACC championship game. We're giving Clemson a run for their money. Then we're nine and four the next year. And then as everybody knows, in 1992, Beamer goes uh, two, eight and one. And, you know, it feels like the wheels came off the train that season. The athletic director at the time, and I don't know if athletic directors do this now anywhere, quite frankly, but the athletic director at the time would actually sit with Beamer during film reviews and listen to Beamer talk about, you know, things that they needed to do for the next game. And that's how that, the athletic director at the time knew that Beamer was his guy. 
But after that two eight and one season, you know, everybody was calling for Beamer's head. I shouldn't say everybody. Most people, a lot of people were calling for Beamer's head. The athletic director sits Beamer down and says, you know, Frank, I like you. I like what you got to say. You're my guy, but your assistants can't cut it. And Frank Beamer, of course, brought his assistants up through the ranks with him. They're his friends. He doesn't want to let them go, you know, ride together, die together. But I'm sure the conversation kind of went along the lines of the athletic director saying, either you fire them or I will fire them because I am firing you, you know, at some point, whether it's that year, next year, down the road. It's been well documented how people like are confused by Cornelson's play calling. You know, Shibus is in charge of special teams. And while we've had good special teams play previously, you know, the kickoff return thing is just weird. I don't understand what they're doing, but uh, Coach Foster is already leaving. And I see similarities. You know, Whit Babcock has already given his stamp of approval to Frente. Um, you know, there was that tweet, you know, the, the two-letter tweet where he simply just says no when asked if Frente was on the hot seat. But, you know, that doesn't speak to Quinn Nielsen, running backs coach, receivers coach, etc. And in my opinion, I think he needs to sit down with Fuente and be, maybe not tell him like what the athletic director in 92 told Frank. We basically said, you got to fire these guys. Maybe have a sit down with them and, you know, look, you know, have that hard conversation. Like is Cornelius the right guy? And I don't know how much Witt knows about football. You know, I don't know if he's sitting there in the film room with coach Fuente. I, I honestly, I doubt it given how close Fuente keeps things close to the vest, but that's going to be, a huge decision, you know, I'm sure Fuente is going to, I'm almost, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I am almost certain Fuente comes back next for next year, unless we legitimately go three and what well, we, we would be three and nine. if we lost every game the rest of the season. Other, other than that, I'm pretty sure Fuente still comes back to his assistance though. That's another question. Other schools have had this issues too. Clemson had this issue, you know, Frank Howard never won a national championship at Clemson, but he's their guy. And they kind of, meandered around for a while there. I think they went to two or three coaches before they finally won that national championship. Um, so the reality is we might have to do the same. Fuente might not be the guy. We might not. We might have to meander around for a while until we find that guy. I want Fuente to be the guy. He's 43 because if he is, it'll last a long time and we can keep it going. You know, what's the peak of a school like Virginia Tech? You know, we have 757. We've got the North Carolina recruiting grounds, Richmond, D.C., but Virginia Tech's in the, as they talk, they talk about Virginia Tech's in the middle of nowhere. But you know, people want to say so is Alabama. But Alabama's got history. You know, what's the what's the peak of a school like Michigan compared to the peak of a school like UNC? You know, what is Tech's peak? You know, for a while with Beamer, we were punching above our weight class. You know, a school like Virginia Tech, in my opinion, definitely at the time, given our history, had no business leading the national championship in the fourth quarter. Just given our history, given how not even 10 years ago we were coming off of scholarship sanctions. We just had no business being there. What is the limit? What is the ceiling for our program? I, I do believe the talent is there around us. 757, Richmond, UNC, as I said. Even West Virginia's got still plays football. We can step into Ohio. Connor's from Florida. We have a huge history of players from Florida. So I do think it's there. I do think Fuente is the guy. I don't know if Cornelison is. If I had to make the call, I say no. Foster's already leaving. I haven't looked into where the defensive coordinators that could potentially take over for him are. I know a lot of people want Torian Gray, but we all know how that ended when he left. I think the I think the ceiling for us is all dependent on... Beamer came in, he revolutionized what football looked like for a period of time. And people have done that with the RPO. I mean, there's, there's, there's different ages to the way that football kind of transpires and we're going to need either really good talent or we're going to need really good forward thinking coaches that are ready to be on the next cusp of whatever the big, you know, the big, the big 
trend is that can can make you a high powered offense. I mean, if you look at what Lincoln Riley's doing right now at Oklahoma, it's unprecedented by far. I mean, it, it, it would probably will never see what he's doing right now ever happen again in terms of the quarterback game and offensive firepower. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think the talent's there, but you gotta you gotta pick either just raw talent. You have to either recruit your local talent, which right now we're not doing as much as we were because people figured it out, or you need coaching. And we're gonna have to pick one of those three things for us to to get back to those heydays. So, uh, but I do I couldn't agree with you know everything that everything that you said that's exactly right and it's good to hear it from an unbiased uh, fan from from not on the podcast to to see what they have to say so why don't we use that let's get into these picks and start talking about um some of these other teams and and see how that shakes out yep I, i'd like to apologize to the listeners in the podcast i uh, i don't gamble actually no i'm not gonna apologize whatever i pick go the other way like if you're <laughs> if you're betting money on vegas whatever i pick go the other way i'm horrible don't don't write what I do for six now and then uh everybody will luckily nobody uh I think gambles off this we do it more for um for fun so we got Pitt minus three and a half they're the favorites going to Syracuse and the Carrier Dome what's what's your pick on this game I the Carrier Dome is a house of horrors uh personally Clemson has struggled in there they almost lost I think in their national championship year we lost in 2016 when we had a really good team Vegas always knows because while that's the same at the same time, Syracuse is not as good as they used to be. They just I guess their the previous quarterback was just that good. I am going to take Pitt. The reason my logic behind it is I think I would if I were who if I was going to pick who was going to win, I was going to think Pitt. I don't think Pitt wins a close game just because the House of Horrors carry a dome. If it's close, Syracuse will end up poking it out. So I'm going to go with Pitt. All right, I'm going to go Syracuse just for them to bounce back and Narduzzi to have another weird game where he plays well one week and he doesn't play well the next week. So the next one we got is ASU at Utah. Utah was a potential playoff favorite or underdog, however you want to word it, going into this season. I'm going to start off on this one. I'm going to go ASU I just because 13 and a half, Big number. ASU has been playing, at least punching above what you know most of us thought this year. And Utah, I think a lot of wind came out of their uh, their sails, given how the expectations got pretty hefty for them this season. Uh, I agree with you. I'm going to go with ASU. I actually, and this is why I have a horrible game week, I'm actually tempted I would take ASU straight up. I think Utah is sort of going to have a letdown. Like you said, they were in the playoff contention. Now they're pretty much all but dead. In that, you know, I, I don't know anything about Utah's culture, but, you know, can they keep it together? ASU is on the up and up. They're ranked I, prior to, I think it was last year. I don't even remember what the first time they were ranked was. So I think they're going to be excited. So, yeah, I agree. I think ASU covers. For me personally, I think they went outright. The next one you have is uh, Clemson going to Louisville. Minus 24. Dude, I'm just making money off of Clemson so far after that FSU game. So, I mean, I'm I'm tempted to take Clemson again in one of these spots, but I don't know if you watched that Louisville game. Louisville is talented. They are. I know Satterfield coming in, coming in 
and the whole, you know, how bad were things beforehand? They are, that team has some speed. And to keep up with Wake Forest like that was impressive to me. So give me 24 points, and I'm definitely going to go Louisville. All right. Uh, you kind of threw me for a goof there. I thought you were going to go Clemson for a second. Uh, I actually agree again. I'm going to go Louisville. I actually think they're going to keep it close, not necessarily because of the talent, but because Florida State, in my opinion, has more talent than Louisville, but they got boat raced because I think Florida State still continues to have a culture problem from within. Louisville at least appears to have solved their culture issues. And when you have a good culture, you have coaches that care, you have players that care, it's really hard to get blown out because quite frankly, you'll just start holding every play and knocking everyone down before you let them beat you before you let them beat you by 50. I'm going to go Louisville as well. And it's at home. I don't know if they're doing anything. Typically for this game, they do that black night blackout thing. So that's where I'm going. All right. So then we are on to Oregon and Washington. Oregon is at Washington. Washington was another potential. Actually, both of these teams were Washington had a little bit more thought to get into the playoff. Oregon had had more. They took the loss early against Auburn, but have been playing well. It's at Washington. From all I've heard, I can't wait someday to make it to a game there. I've heard the atmosphere is fantastic. It's great. That's the reason that I'm going Washington in this. I think Oregon might actually be the more talented team, but I'm going to take the home team in this one. All right, glad we get to get to defer on one, excuse me, because I'm going to go Oregon. I think, uh, similar to the letdown, Washington is um, pretty much out of the college football playoff race. Oregon pretty much is out too, but Oregon still has everything in front of them in terms of the Pac-12 championship, if I'm not mistaken. And to be honest, I'm not going to lie. I know more about Oregon than I know Washington, and so I, I'm afraid of the unknown. So I'm going to stick to my Oregon pick. So speaking of FSU, you have we have FSU at Wake. Wake's getting minus two. Uh, I'll go ahead and go first. I'm afraid, you know, they always say that Vegas knows, but I feel like Vegas doesn't know because watching FSU get boat raced by Clemson, watching Wake Forest put up a billion points against Louisville, continue to play well, I'm going to take Wake. Yeah, I'm taking Wake as well. I, unless FSU's, if FSU's offensive line doesn't do something dramatically different than what they have been doing, I don't even know how they keep it close in this game. I so Vegas knows something. We're probably both wrong. And but if if their offensive line is even half as bad or a quarter of as bad as it has been, then uh, Wake's going to have a heyday. And then we'll finish it off with Michigan at Penn State minus nine. Michigan, another almost they were almost a playoff. You know almost a shoe in most people thought that they were. They said most people thought it would just come down to the Ohio State game and whether they could win that. And things have not gone that way. So what do you uh what are you thinking here? Oof, you know, Michigan, you know, we always joke about what was it two weeks ago we had Jim Harbaugh Day, the 10-3 date. Um Penn State still has, you know, everything in front of them to play for. Michigan really can only just play spoiler for either Penn State or Ohio State. It's at Penn State minus nine. I I think it's going to actually be a, qu- a culture question for Michigan. Do they have the culture that's going to keep this game close? Because Penn State does have more talent. I'm I'm expecting them to win. But can Michigan keep it close? I don't think they will. I think Penn State wins by two scores. Whether uh, you know, it's nice that it's nine because if I win by if they win by ten, then I'm solid. So I'm going with Penn State. Yeah, I'm coming back to my Clemson FSU pick where this is a statement game for Penn State. 
They haven't been getting what they deserve. I actually don't know that Michigan has more talent. I think Michigan has more defensive talent. I don't think they have more offensive talent. I think they thought they did, but they, I think Penn State's offensive talent is really good. So nine points is a lot. And that feels like it could be a push. But if I'm going to, if I'm going to bet on that, then we'll go with Penn State. So that wraps it for us here on the podcast. We have successfully gone through now five seasons without missing an episode and a special thanks to our guest, Devin. Otherwise it it wouldn't have happened. Uh, It would have just been me drawing on and most people would have turned it off after, uh, after five minutes. So I appreciate you hopping on. Yeah, no, glad I could come. I uh, honestly didn't expect you to be so for it when I first messaged it. You know, I'm a, I, I like to say that I'm a passionate listener. So when I heard he was gone, I was like, oh, I'll reach out. You know, I'll be there if he needs me. And the first response out of you was, all right, let's do it. And I remember texting my best friend going, I've made a mistake. <laughs> no, you did, you did awesome. And um, you hit a lot of stuff that uh, we normally don't cover on the uh, on the podcast. So super appreciative of it. Too deep. It's too deep VT at gmail.com, too deep VT on Twitter. You can find it. Just type in Hokies and it pops right up on your iTunes app. If you listen there, pretty much any app, uh, luckily under the uh, the tagline Hokies, we pop up pretty quickly. So then uh, another thanks to Devin for coming on. A huge Hokie fan, obviously thrown through for, for his entire life. And until next time, we'll just say... Hope we get this close squeaky win against UNC and go Hokies. Go Hokies.